baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up, and your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. We really need new phones. T Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. I remember the time I first saw myself represented on screen. It was 1991. I was four years old. It was a fantastical film, a surreal, bright-colored live-action movie based on Disney's Peter Pan. Then he showed up, dressed like a rock star, red streaks in his hair, and his nose, flat like my cousin's nose is. His skin and his eyes, brown like mine. Dante Bosco's portrayal of Rufio and Hook left me in awe. He was just so cool. And while I was only four, the movie has stuck with me and my friends to this day. I'm from Vallejo, California, considered one of the most diverse cities in the country in the last couple of decades. And most of the people I went to school with and grew up with were Filipino, Black, Asian, Latino. So growing up, when I saw white faces on the screen, when I saw storylines unfamiliar to my own, I was left wanting and feeling unseen. I couldn't relate. And so for so many of us, we may have become so used to seeing white American, oftentimes blonde hair, blue eyes, um, people as the standard vision of what an American is. This Asian American Native Hawaiian Pacific Islander Heritage Month, we're asking, how can the increase of people from these communities, or lack of, in movies and television support or be detrimental to their mental health? And what happens when harmful and negative stereotypes from the screen bleed into real life? This week on Connect the Dots, we'll speak with Dr. Kevin Nadal, a distinguished professor at the John Jay College of Criminal Justice at the City University of New York, and the author of Filipino American Psychology. And that's so gay, microaggressions and the lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender community. We'll also hear from Valerie So, a Chinese-American experimental filmmaker and Asian-American studies professor at San Francisco State University, who I actually took an Asian-Americans in the media class from many moons ago. She'll tell us how, in the 80s, she took matters into her own hands to correct negative stereotypes popularized in the media. I'm Mallory Samara, and this is Connect the Dots from Odyssey. The University of Southern California Annenberg School for Communication reported that between 2017 and 2019, there were only six Asian women leads in the top 1,300 box office films. 
The same study revealed that 39% failed to show even one AANHPI character, which is short for Asian American, Native Hawaiian, Pacific Islander, by the way. In 2019, South Korean actress Yoon Yo-jung won Best Supporting Actress at the Academy Awards for her role in Minari, establishing her as the first Korean person to win an Oscar. But it's important to note, in the 94 years of Oscar ceremonies, an Asian woman has never won Best Actress, demonstrating just how often AANHPI performers are overlooked. I sat down with Dr. Kevin Nadal to discuss how so-called non-inclusion can negatively impact mental health. Um, you know, when we think about things like media representation through television and movies, um, if you don't look like uh, the standards of beauty that are portrayed on these screens, then it might cause you to have body image issues or have some low self-esteem regarding some of your features, whether it be based on race, that you don't have the white pale skin or the blonde hair or brown hair, blue eyes or green eyes, um, as the people you see on television or in movies. It be based on size. If you're not skinny or thin or muscular for men, then you might develop some body image issues as well. Um, and so I think it really is important um, for people to recognize the connection between representation and mental health issues, that it might not necessarily be like a, a quick solve. That means that if somebody is represented, that all of a sudden all your mental health issues are fixed and, and not to be worried about anymore. But it means that at least it's one less thing that they might have to worry or stress about. I mean, especially when you think about children and adolescents who are uh, learning to develop their identities, learning to develop their senses of selves. And if, if they don't see people who are from their similar backgrounds succeeding, thriving, living happy and healthy lives, people that they can aspire to be like, then maybe they don't know that that's in reach. Um, and that this isn't just something in terms of like movies, but even just like seeing people who are elected officials in government who are of your same racial or ethnic background, seeing teachers, principals, professors who have your same ethnic background. Um, you know, there's an old saying that says you can't be what you can't see. You know, essentially that means that if you don't see somebody who is like you in a certain field, you might think it's out of reach. It's impossible. Yeah. And, you know, that also brought something up for me, which is, you know, we we really do look up to people in the media. We look up to movie stars and, you know, maybe not as much as we do um, like community members as like, say we should, but, you know, we really do look up to these people. They're, they're everywhere. They're in magazines, they're on television and not seeing that, you know, like you said, it's like just seeing it and not seeing it. It's like, well, can I even be in that realm? Can I be in that space? So in contrast to that, you know, we talk about seeing that storyline or seeing those characters or even not seeing them. Some of the played out tropes that we've seen over the years of AAPI characters from older movies, TV shows, Fu Manchu, The House Cleaner, which has recently been turned around for mm -hmm. a TV show, um, Mail Order Bride, which being Filipino, you hear that mm -hmm. one a lot, mm -hmm. um, The Dragon Lady you know, or it's usually used as a punchline, right? Like I personally grew up, you know, being Filipino, I were I heard the word Filipino thrown around as a joke, usually, but I would never see them on screen. Right. And that is how people perceive them, right? Like that is how people mm -hmm. receive that community when all they do is like hear it, hear it or see it 
as a joke, right? So how do these negative stereotypes, not just not being seen, but how do these negative stereotypes and these demeaning references impact you as well? When I think about, you know, some of these these tropes that you had mentioned, um, you know, they could be really damaging on both interpersonal and societal levels. I mean, interpersonally, it's very much related to some of the things that I talked about before. Um, not just are you, uh, does invisibility might lead to mental health issues, self-esteem issues, body image issues, which can lead to behavioral issues like eating disorders or substance use or, or any number of things that people do when they have difficulty managing their mental health. But um, there are also societal implications, right? So the Asian American woman as dragon lady, as hypersexual, as submissive, those stereotypes can have uh, real effects on how Asian American women are treated in society. And we saw this last year with the rise of anti-Asian violence after the start of the pandemic. Um, and then we saw it shift towards women, where Asian American women, um, not just were targeted more by these everyday sorts of hate crimes and microaggressions and other forms of violence, but were actually targeted directly by these murders. Um, and so in Atlanta, um, six out of the eight people that were shot during those Atlanta uh, murder sprees were Asian American women. And even here in New York City, um, two women of Asian descent were killed. And while it might not ever be labeled as a hate crime, for us just to acknowledge that that's a lot of pain and death in our community that's already suffering from so much hate and trauma as is. So when people view Asian American women as hypersexual or disposable or objects um, or women that are going to be submissive towards you, then they might think they can actually treat women like that in person or abuse women or even engage in, in hate violence towards them. Um, and so it does have, uh, have detrimental effects. And even in terms of, um, you know, just um, not that what I'm about to say isn't violent because violence takes lots of forms, not just people shooting and, and hurting each other physically, but even just some of the data that shows that Asian Americans are less likely to be promoted um, mm -hmm. in leadership positions within employment, within workplace. That can be linked to some of these stereotypes as well. If Asian Americans are viewed as submissive, not good leaders, nerdy, any number of these things, um, when that person is up for a a, a promotion, he, she, they might not get it because that person who's in charge might have some other biases that they learned somehow about Asian Americans. Um, and so it's important to, to recognize that it's not just these overt biases that people have, but also these implicit biases that uh, if you have never met Asian American people or have met very few Asian American people, what you have to rely on is the media. One thing that is not lacking on screen is the upsurge in hate and violence directed towards the AANHPI community. From March 2020 to December 2021, almost 11,000 hate crimes against Asian Americans were reported to stop AAPI hate, a coalition that tracks hate crimes against AAPI communities. Of the hate crimes reported, most were either verbal harassment or physical assault. Another report by the coalition documents the mental health of Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders to, who see hate crimes in their communities and on screen. It found that one in five AAPIs who have experienced racism have shown racial trauma, 
and those who have experienced racism have heightened symptoms of depression, anxiety, and other physical symptoms. The thing is, Asian Americans are the least likely to seek mental health services. You know, in the past couple of years, we've seen so much coverage on Asian hate. And, you know, it's good to have that coverage. It is good to have these things known. But what type of impact also does seeing this have on people? Because I know a lot of folks, including myself, who, you know, after watching the news, you're like, I don't want my mom going to the grocery store by herself. Or, you know, like, what kind of impact has that had on people? this publicizing of some of the violence happening towards uh, Asian Americans is that it can be really uh, traumatizing to watch videos of Asian elders getting beat up. That might then, you know, make you fearful of walking the streets yourself or your parents or grandparents um, walking the streets. And so it it might even have a a detrimental effect. It's uh, something that we know is is uh, is happening um that uh having documentation of it helps to demonstrate to the world that it is happening and here's some proof some evidence and that might even be able to be used in a court of law at some point but for the everyday viewer seeing all of these things can lead to this uh what we call a collective trauma or a collective racial trauma, because now you might be scared, and rightfully so. Um, And so I think for me, one of the things that's really important is uh, to find a balance, to be able to recognize that having some of this publicity or news reporting is important, um, because it helps to tell that story. But, you know, making intentions to not share videos of violence towards Asian people um, in social media. So I think that's something that's important. I think the other thing that's important with news reporters is to be really responsible in how they report the news. Um, I know there have been several instances over the past couple of years in which newspapers, particularly and their corresponding websites, chose stock photos of Asian Americans when running stories on COVID, which to a person who is already angry at Asian Americans um, can start to connect those dots um, and say that, you know, see, Asian people are the ones who brought this virus to this country. Asian American filmmakers back in the 60s, 70s, and 80s saw harmful depictions in movies and TV as an opportunity to turn the tables and bring to life storylines that resonated with them. In documentaries and the art space, they used realms not commonly controlled by commercial media. You know, I made a film, a short experimental film in 1991, that was all just clips about Asian women in Hollywood and how horribly stereotypical they were and sexist and sexualized the images were. That's my former professor from San Francisco State, Valerie So. She began making experimental film in 1986 with her debut piece called All Orientals Look the Same. I was really interested at that time in um, various political issues, Asian American political issues. And so I was, you know, kind of involved with a lot of student organizations at UCLA. But weirdly enough, there was no Asian American studies major at UCLA at that time. And there was no journalism major. I try to show a lot of documentaries that show Asian American activism because I think there's a stereotype that Asian Americans are very passive and quiet model minorities. So to show that that's actually not true and that there's a history of radicalism in the Asian American community is, is very important. 
I think one of the movies, I, did you, I think you showed the fall of the I hotel. I mean, I would eventually, I think I had maybe learned about it once, you know, luckily coming from, you know, sort of like an activist, like, you know, Filipino mom, mm -hmm. but like, I, I mean, I'll just never forget when you taught that in class and it was yeah. kind of life-changing in that way. Yeah. I think for a lot of people it is because, you know, again, they're not familiar with the story and how far back a lot of that, that activism goes you know, and so it's super important to show that. But I mean, even something like that movie Picture Bright, which is set in the 20s in Hawaii, that one, sh there's a little bit about how the, the plantation workers went on strike in the 20s. So, you know, even back in the 20s, Asian Americans were definitely fighting back against a lot of uh, injustice. So it's not just, you know, we come over here, we're quiet, we raise a lot, of, make a lot of money, we go to Stanford, and then we assimilate. There's definitely a lot of struggle and a lot of work for social justice. The foundational work from AANHPI documentarians and independent and experimental filmmakers paved the way for more exposure, giving writers, directors, and producers from those communities a chance to tell stories that better reflected their own experiences. Slowly but surely, we're seeing an increase in Asian American, Native Hawaiian, and Pacific Islander representation on screen and on platforms like Netflix and Hulu and even some big-budget box office films like Marvel's Shang-Chi, The Mindy Project, and a recent film which has quickly become a favorite of my own, Everything Everywhere All at Once, which tackles the pressures of Asian immigrant women and the way they trickle down to their American-born children in a way I've never seen on screen in my life. In 2020, with its twisted and eerily accurate depiction of the dichotomy between rich and poor, Bong Joon-ho's South Korean film Parasite dazzled audiences and became the first non-English language movie to win Best Picture at the Oscars. First, we started to get a little bit more representation. We had stuff like Fresh Off the Boat to All the Boys I've Loved Before. And then we started getting into things like Never Have I Ever. And most recently, something I have been just completely fangirling over, which is Everything Everywhere All at Once. And in a recent article for Diaspora, Nancy Wang Yuen said, quote, the multiverse concept is an ingenious counter narrative to the historical erasure and one dimensional Hollywood portraits of Asians and Asian women in particular. Mm -hmm. And we're seeing more depth in these characters than I think we've ever seen before. How big of a deal is that for us to see all of these different layers, like sadness and joy and regret and jealousy, like what difference does that make seeing that on screen? This is a great question. I think one thing that we have to recognize when we talk about representation, um, that simply seeing a face of somebody who's from your community might be somewhat helpful, um, but might not be that great if they are one-dimensional characters or if they don't really demonstrate the diversity of our communities. Before, it used to be that we were just happy to see anyone of any Asian ethnicity being represented. Um, but over time, you know, we we recognize that in, in just presenting these one-dimensional characters, that it then reinforces some of these tropes that have been a part of our narrative for so long. And so I think one thing that we have have to really uplift is 
that Asian American writers and producers and creatives are the ones who are making this happen, um, that we can no longer wait for other people to write our stories. And in fact, we shouldn't want other people to write our stories because they're probably going to tell them incorrectly. When you think about what we saw before, things like Miss Saigon, which, you know, I will admit I loved all the songs, but is that really representative of what a Vietnamese refugee experience is um, during, you know, the Vietnam War and how much might it have been orientalized, exoticized, because it was written through that lens. And I think one of the things that we now have are Asian American writers who are telling more complex Asian American stories, right? If you think about any of these Asian American coming of age movies in the 90s and the 2000s, which were all foundational and brilliant in their own ways, that they really focused on things like identity and cultural conflicts. And while those are still very much issues that a lot of Asian Americans deal with today, we're also dealing with things like depression and suicidal thoughts and sex issues and relationships problems and, you know, all sorts of other, you know, heavier topics. And, you know, just having folks who um, can navigate those stories, who represent you or, or are, are part of communities that um, are like you, that can be even more the powerful. So just as a quick personal example, right? So I'm a queer person, queer man who grew up with no representation of Filipinos, um, definitely very few representation of Asian Americans and um, very few representations of LGBTQ folks, right? Um, and while that increased over time, what was presented were representations of white LGBTQ folks. And so that narrative was one that I sort of related with, but also wasn't my experience. Um, and so it wasn't until I started to watch queer people of color, trans people of color, and their narratives that I started to feel more connected to those types of storylines or issues, right? So for example, um, the television show Pose and uh, ways that the writers who are queer people of color, writers and directors, trans and queer people of color, um, the ways that they've been able to tell the stories are now going to help or have already helped trans and queer black and brown people um, to see their stories on screen, to feel represented, to feel connected. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes it's even just in the little details, right? Like, have you seen Everything Everywhere all at once? I haven't, but it's on my list of things to watch. It's just the dad's fanny pack, you know, it's <laughs> the discussion of, and I'm not going to give anything away, but just representing your family, you know, and we see that in other movies in American, you know, white American movies, but not in the same way. And I just remember like this whole, because I've seen it twice. And I just remember I was sitting in my car the other day and I thought, oh my God, is this, is this how white Americans have felt all of these years? Like watching these movies and like seeing right. themselves in these characters. I just thought, oh my God, I finally, I'm like finally understanding. And I'm like finally getting how they have felt all of these years. And it's, it feels like a relief. And it is a relief. And the things that you just want more, right? So it's mm -hmm. kind of like you get these one or two programs and you want more. And then, you know, there's just aren't enough out there. And, and, you know, I don't know that white people watching these things necessarily feel this way, because it's so normalized for them to see other white people on television or in movies, um, that they might not even be thinking about it. That's one of the yeah. things about whiteness, um, is that it's so invisible for them that unless it's pointed out to them, a lot of times they don't even recognize it. Um, in the same ways that many of us were, would watch white people, uh, many of us people of color would 
watch white people in television and movies. And, you know, some of us might say, hey, they're white, but a lot of us would just watch the plot and, mm -hmm. um, and their whiteness was something that was invisible, you know, or it was something that we might have noticed, but we just still found a way to appreciate the storyline um, without it being about race. And that's the power of whiteness. It's something that is so, um, it, it's something that people view as so invisible that it's just the standard that if you present a white um, plot on any television or movie, that everyone should be able to relate to it and that it's marketable because of that. Uh, versus what we know and lots of people have talked about is that when Asian American stories are pitched or movies are pitched, people will say, well, no one's going to want to watch that except for Asian American people. But that's not something that's said to white people, right? That we they expect that all of us will watch them, but the opposite isn't true um, for them watching some of our stories. But there's the movies like Black Panther and Crazy Rich Asians demonstrate that people do want to watch stories of people of other racial ethnic backgrounds. Nadal says that creating these multidimensional stories is not only important in representing Asian Americans, but also in supporting their mental health. He believes it's crucial for young people to see themselves on screen. When modern streaming services offer titles with diverse representation, they can actually help young people have agency over what types of shows and movies they choose to watch. Yeah, one of the things that I've appreciated about seeing more diversity uh, in mainstream media across different racial ethnic groups, so for Asian Americans, Black Americans, Latinx folks, and so forth, um, is that now young people will grow up with something that I didn't grow up with. They will grow up with stories from mainstream media that might reflect them, right? Because, you know, my mom made, made me watch like the Filipino channel or something, but they're watching something on like their Netflix or their regular, uh, you know, television, cable television that reflects them. And I think that can certainly help in protecting against some of the other things I talked about earlier, like low self-esteem or, you know, feeling bad about your body or your face or your skin color because you don't see anyone who looks like you. Um, yeah. From a very personal perspective, I thought about this a lot in terms of, um, you know, I think a lot of times um, prior to, let's say, 20. Um, 2010, uh, where we didn't have, you know, Netflix and Hulu and all those things. We just had um, a regular television. And if you had cable, you had a little bit, you had a few more options, right? Um, I'm talking about the when we all had cable um, and you had to go to that channel that just showed what everything was playing and you had to wait for it to scroll to see what was playing uh, because yeah. there, there were very limited things that you could watch. I remember right? that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Right? So the very limited things that you could watch. And so then oftentimes we just chose to watch the status quo. Right. Um, like I m one of my jokes that for to, I share to people is that, like, I watched a lot of Everybody Loves Raymond. Um, and while that's a pretty cool show, I guess um, I watched it because it was on. Right. There was nothing else on and it was syndicated. So it was on all the time. Yeah. Right? Young people today don't have to watch whatever the equivalent of Everybody Loves Raymond is. Um, and, you know, no disrespect really to Everybody Loves Raymond, um, but rather just that there are options. 
right? You can not just see more representation in general, um, but you can choose um, across different platforms when and where you want to watch these different forms of representation. In fact, you know, I mentioned Netflix. Netflix is showing things from different countries um, that might be of interest to you. Um, and, you know, that could feel good as well. Like they have ca whole categories on, you know, Asian American films or, or LGBTQ films or television shows. So, you know, you have more of a say in what you consume versus before a lot of what we consumed was forced upon us. But Nadal says that Hollywood still has a long way to go in representing Asian American actors, especially Filipinos, who are the second largest Asian American group in the United States and rarely represented in popular media. I asked both Valerie So and Kevin Nadal to recall the first time they felt represented on screen. It might have possibly been in Chana's Missing, which came out in 1981, which is Wayne Wong's indie film about San Francisco Chinatown. Yeah. And, you know, that movie, was, it was just really groundbreaking because it did have realistic Asian characters, Asian American characters that I recognized from my own family and my own life. At that time, that was very unusual and rare. So it was quite something. Yeah, I too. I think Rufio, um, Dante Bosco was probably one of the first and also Tia Carrera in Wayne's World. But, the, you know, I've written about this as well, because while those are both very lovely characters in the mainstream, one of the yeah. problems is that they they were Filipino actors playing either non Filipino role, so Tia Carrera playing a Chinese American role, or playing a colorblind role, Rufio just yeah. being, uh, you know, whatever he is, a lost boy, right? Um, and so what message does that send? That you can see Filipinos on screen, but then they aren't actually Filipino. Um, and so it's as if the message is that, you know, you can be on television, sort of, but you have to give up a part of yourself, or your storyline isn't as important. Before we go, I think it's worth noting that in this episode, we did largely focus on Asian American and Filipino communities. The entertainment industry still has a long way to go when it comes to representing Native Hawaiians and Pacific Islander communities. Because so many of those places have been colonized by the United States and Britain, I think they're largely looked at as vacation destinations, which as a whole can contribute to the dehumanization of those communities. I recommend watching films like Whale Rider and There Once Was an Island. And if you Google it, there are a ton of lists of Pacific Islander movies to check out. I'm going to keep doing the work and doing the research, too. This episode of Connect the Dots was written and produced by Lauren Berry, Sydney Fishman, and myself, with editing by Cooper Mall and additional editing, mixing, and mastering by me, the show's executive producer, Mallory Samara. Subscribe to Connect the Dots and listen to past episodes by heading to the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. For KCBS Radio in San Francisco, I'm Mallory Samara. Thanks for listening. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up, and your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. 
Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com.